Sometimes, when you're lucky, you get a chance to talk with the smartest person in the room. I got to do that earlier this year, and now you get to do it too. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Last March, I moderated a Q&A about Othello at a conference on race and Shakespeare at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. On stage with me was someone I knew only by reputation, Iqbal Khan, a brilliant theater director. He's best known for digging into Shakespeare's plays and unearthing all the parts that make them relevant to 21st century audiences. But the more we talked and the more I learned about him, the more convinced I was that Iqbal Khan is the perfect guest for Shakespeare Unlimited. He's someone who thinks deeply about Shakespeare in broad, new, and exciting ways. And he's someone who's bringing the benefits of all that thinking to theater goers around the world. Iqbal is also an authentically generous person who agreed to take time from his directing work to come into a studio in London and to talk. We call this podcast, Tell the Tale Anew. Iqbal Khan is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. When you begin work on a new production of Shakespeare, what criteria or checklist do you bring with you? I mean, are there requirements that you feel every performance has to meet or, or things you feel every production must have to, to meet your standards? <laughs> no, I, I certainly don't presume to have a, a checklist to mark against Shakespeare and whether he qualifies or not. I, I, I suppose it's a bit more nebulous than that. I think I, I have to feel that when I'm being asked to, to do a Shakespeare play, that I feel a concrete, visceral connection to the material now. Uh, we change and his plays change as we change and as the world changes. So so when I'm asked to do a play, I read it and I've, I first of all try and just listen to what it detonates in me. I love that idea of, uh, and that word that you use, detonates, because I know as when I go to see a Shakespeare play and I'm sitting in the audience, I'm kind of in the back of my mind, I'm aware of all the times I've read the plays, mm, but exactly. that this is a new, I'm wanting this to be a new experience. Yes. So yes. Do, you, do you also have that um, very clear distinction in your mind of your whole literary experience of, of Shakespeare and how it's yeah. different from that theatrical yeah. experience? Well, yeah, because I, th- I think you're not just dealing with, with your past experience with the literature but you're also dealing with your, your sense of its performance history. And I suppose that first encounter with the piece again, when asked to do it, um, I, I, I try as much as I can to kind of scrape away all of that other stuff. And I always take it from there because I, I suppose the guiding principle for me is that I, I want to do these old plays as if they're new plays because I want to speak to an audience and I want them to either feel refreshed if they've if they're a traditional audience or if they're new I want them to feel like it it genuinely speaks to um, their concerns their anxieties about the world as as it is now hmm. can you give us an example of what you've done with a production to achieve that detonation Tush! never tell me I take it much unkindly that there we are go who has had my purse as if the strings were thine, should know of this? Lad! 
but you'll not hear me. If ever I did dream of such a matter, abhor me. Thou told'st me thou didst hold him in thy hate. Despise me if I do not. Sit down. One of the most recent examples, most famous examples, was this recasting of Iago at the RSC as a as a black character. Three great ones of the city in personal suit to make me his lieutenant of capped to him. And by the faith of man, I know my price. I am worth no worse a place. But he, as loving his own pride and purposes, evades them with a bombast circumstance. I, I chose to kind of ask the question and to explore it because I, I wanted to see if that play spoke to a 21st century experience of race and difference. And the way we experience it in the world now, I think, is much more nuanced than the kind of binary black-white thing that uh, Elizabethan audiences might have encountered. For thirties, says he, I have already chose my officer. And what was he? Forsooth, a great arithmetician. One Michael Cassio. A Florentine. A fellow almost damned in a fair wife that never set a squadron in the field. Nor the division of a battle knows more than a spinster. Mere in casting a black Iago, all the, um, the kind of easy assumptions of racism in the play get dislodged. And when I proposed that to the RSC, what, what I did before just saying, well, this is how I want to do it, I, I said I'd, I'd love to have a workshop where I had both a black actor and a white actor and do this. And I did the same scenes with the same direction as much as I could and played them with a black actor and a white actor to, to just see what of the DNA of the plays survived, what gets distorted and what might be refreshed by the experiment. Now, what if we go the other way around this scene? Mm-hmm. Use your masculinity. Mm. Use your, uh, your, your martial status. Mm. Tash, never tell me. Come on. Much unkind to now, Iago, who has had my purse as if the strings were thine since no one's Blood, but you'll not hear me. I found that only useful, enriching, more nuanced things happened to the play and that the essential DNA of the play remained intact because the play's motor is betrayal um, and, and othering. And the manipulation of these things is the game that Iago plays. But Iago doesn't have to be the thing himself. He doesn't have to be the racist. He, he, he manipulates others' anxieties. That is so interesting because it does, as you say, it really plays with the racial dynamic and the interpretations yes. and it makes it much less of a black-white paradigm. And what you just said, I want to pick up on a, a question back or so about, about racism, black-on-black racism. And I think I understand what you're saying in an American context in which historically lighter-skinned African-Americans or Afro-Caribbeans were prejudiced against the darker-skinned. Uh, and then there was later the kind of a reversal of that, you know, and Oreos and Oreos being blacks who acted too white were stigma are stigmatized by the black community. Mm. Uh, but but maybe I need a little help uh, understanding it in the British or the or or a more international context. What are these different kinds of experiences, black experiences you're talking about that you were mm. highlighting? And yeah, I, I I'm not sure that it is massively different. I I think. Particularly now, the communities of color here have been informed by the, the dialogues and the experiences of what's happening across the pond, as it were. But 
the, I suppose the assimilated and the unassimilated have very different experiences of the indigenous population. And whereas um, Othello at the beginning of the play might be a, a man who's sort of treated like a Lenny Kravitz, like a superstar other, uh, and therefore is given a privileged position in that society. Uh, Iago has a very different kind of experience because he becomes one of us, as it were. And um, he can give the, the the white man permission to make racist jokes if he laughs at it and all the rest of it. Or if a joke is made and Iago, or a black man now, was, was to take offence, that room would freeze. So there's a way of that a person of colour can manipulate anxieties around vocabularies of race that is very useful to an Iago. When my outward action does demonstrate the native act and figure of my heart in compliment extern, tis not long after that I will wear my heart upon my sleeve for doors to peck at. <laughs> and you have a moment in the play where you do that in the opening scene with Iago at the and very Rodrigo, who's yeah. played by, yeah. Yeah, by a white actor, and Rodrigo mm. refers to Othello as thick lips. What, I am. Oh, what a full <laughs> fortune does the thick lips owe if it can carry it thus. <laughs> And you have uh, Iago just freezes up, and then yeah. he just makes a joke of the whole thing. <laughs> exactly, and in making a joke of it, he liberates that vocabulary in Rodrigo even more. He gives him permission to be a certain thing, to give voice to a certain ugly instinct that is present. It might be policed, but it's present. And it's it, what's interesting in the play is just to sort of see what it takes for that ugly, unsaid thing to be given voice. You also explode this whole idea of the noble moor uh, yeah. with Othello as well. He's okay with yeah. waterboarding and using torture to get Iago to mm. tell him of uh, Desdemona's yeah. infidelity. And yeah. it, it's so interesting because it's um, paradoxically with all of these direct choices I see you making, it seems as if uh, you're freeing the play to go deeper, to go beyond race, or, or not making race the central focus, even though many of these choices involve race. And and I was thinking that's, I, yeah. that's also funny, because every time someone interviews you, they almost always talk about race. Mm. So is that just what happens when you're a non-white director in theater, or is it because of these this kind of... Um, dance you're doing yeah yeah i mean i, I suppose I, I don't think it's specific to a person of color i think anybody who's who who hasn't traditionally been allowed the privilege of doing these the, the, these works is asked how, how you qualify like i've I, i've had to uh, make the case for myself maybe more than an equivalent white director would would have had to whenever i'm I, i'm asked about my legitimacy to do things with, say, Shakespeare or... I did a production of Arthur Miller's Broken Glass and I was asked, you know, how as a non-Jew could I tell the story of a Jewish man? You know, so much of our engagement with this material is to do with empathy, is to, to get beyond race. Um, Although cultural true. appropriation, though, is, is, is such a minefield right now. And so... You know, I think it's fair to say it would be much more difficult for a white director to, to pull off this kind of exploration that you're going for. Um, so why is it okay for you to, to confront uh, 
racism on, on, on in, in all its specificity applied to Afro-Caribbeans when, when you're Pakistani? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I think anybody can be, be challenged um, about their legitimacy to have certain conversations. Uh, and, and I think, you know, that, that challenge, that provocation is, is a good one because this has only been problematic in the last, say, 40 years, 30 years, and the previous 400, it was unproblematic. So it's, it's okay that we're having these conversations and they're, that they're problematic. Ultimately, eventually, in our idealized future, I, I would hope that anyone who has done the work, has prepared and cares enough and isn't complacent in the way they appropriate or or use Im- images or tropes, is allowed to do what, what they want to do to, so, so long as what they're doing is, is serious and, and deeply felt. I think the other problem with our extremely polarized moment right now, though not just mm. in race, but politics and religion and ideology, is that as you say, we're living in a world that has very complicated views on race and on the other, but mm. it's a world that is also particularly intolerant of complexity <laughs> or nuance. So, I think, I think so how key. do you build these bridges that you're that really you're yeah. talking about? I, I think that's key. I mean, I, I'm not sure we do have particularly complicated views. On, on race at the moment, and well, not in 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 the dialogue that's happening. I think the experience is complicated, but I think what 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 is distressing at the moment is is how binary, how reductive the conversation is, and I, actually, which is which is why it's so important to do plays like Shakespeare's. That I mean, the, the the glory of Shakespeare is the absence of Shakespeare in his plays. That there is no authoritative perception that there that there is this this multitude of voices vying for authority and it's a it's a very complex experience and i and i think we need to be prepared to have the complicated conversations and be prepared to not go enter into them with a view to winning them uh, but to just have them to learn uh, but but I, th- I think that's a big issue. I think people often only enter the conversation if they feel they have a strategy for for success. Um, and I sort of think it would be lovely if that could be put to one side and you just had the conversations. Well, this leads us right into the other play <laughs> I wanted to talk about. We've only talked yes. about Othello and you've directed yes. so many. Yes. Uh, you also uh, got into some hot water with a mm. production <laughs> That was mounted in Toronto in uh, oh, yes. last year, 2018. Mm. So you were brought in to work with high school students on The Merchant of Venice. And mm-hmm. as I understand it, parents got so angry uh, because they claimed that their children weren't comfortable with allegedly anti-Semitic uh, portrayals and content in, in this production mm-hmm. and that the students mm-hmm. were not given enough context for the production, mm-hmm. uh, those in the audience and maybe in the play also. And the mm-hmm. upshot was that the principal of the school was forced to resign. So mm-hmm. I've read the newspaper articles. They always, yes. they try to give many sides, but it seems like they only gave one, one version. So what's yes. your version of what happened there? Um, okay, this is quite delicate. <laughs> um, so we were taking a one-man version of The Merchant of Venice uh, to Toronto. It's, it's a version of the play that we have done before. Uh, shared it in workshops and developed it and 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 also played it in in, in the UK. Um, school uh, classes were in the in a, in our rehearsal space. So I I mean I think 
about at least a third, maybe half of our rehearsal period involved having a classroom of young people in the room and having a conversation about what it is that we were doing. Now, it, it wasn't just Merchant of Venice. It's a play that is about a, a young man who walks on stage. He has a suitcase and he tells the story of what's in that suitcase. And what's in that suitcase is are the, um, the, the last remaining fragments of things that belong to his grandfather who died <clears throat> as a part of the Holocaust. Uh, and so he tells that story in parallel to telling the story of Merchant of Venice. The, w- what the play was ultimately doing was, ironically, it was talking about hate speech and talking about anti-Semitism, not as uh, something that began in the, with the Holocaust, but that is centuries, uh, over a millennia old. Um, and it had an example of Martin Luther's speech, a uh, horrible, rabid, anti-Semitic speech, and the actor played the first half of that speech to the audience, which is which is challenging. It is shocking. But the whole point of doing it was to share with the audience how disgusting and ugly all of this was. Uh, it was a very, very healthy experience. The teachers were, were thrilled by the conversations that were happening. We never had any... Uh, negative statements from any of the students. They were thrilled to have the conversations. Uh, and then we sh- when we shared the play, we, we we did two performances. We did an afternoon performance for the school kids. And then in the evening, we did a performance for parents, board members and the public. And on both occasions, we had a rapturous response. I mean, essentially, the whole audience stood up and applauded us. And then we did Q&As after both performances. Um, and so if, if anybody had been upset, I would imagine that somebody would have said something there. Nobody did. So um, when we then subsequently heard about these, I think it was a group of 20 parents who wrote to the newspapers. And these parents hadn't seen the play, correct? Exactly. So, so none of these parents had seen the play. So, I mean, I, I don't know the truth of this. It felt to me like those young people had perhaps been weaponized in terms of how they were going to be receiving anything or that what they had, what they communicated was distorted and and, and certainly what was reported in the papers was just wrong in terms of what they said was happening in the play. Well, again, it's so ironic that mm. in trying to raise awareness of, of in this case, anti-Semitism <laughs> exactly. and demonizing and, the and other, you're, you're being accused yes. of it. And hate exactly. speech, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Merchant of Venice, it's always, uh, it's, it's always a minefield as well. Yes, it What's, is. What is the moral to this whole dust-up? What did you take um, away from the experience? Well, well I, 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 I think the, the sad thing was, was that there wasn't a conversation afterwards. And what was very sad was that the intimidation that that resulted from from that meant that the school closed down any kind of debate. And we were sort of erased from their social media pages. Uh, And that conversation with us never happened. So I I suppose the takeaway was that actually what what happened was was a closing down of conversation. And that's sad, very sad. This whole story also reminds me of something else that you've talked about that I think is provocative, um, Mm. especially considering your role as a director. And you said at one point in an interview that contradiction is peculiar to what Shakespeare does. He never just dramatizes Mm. evil. He dramatizes the awful things that good people 
do. And and in this case, you weren't referring to either of the plays we've talked about. You were referring no. to Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Mm. And, mm. and in the interview, you went on to say that it's clear that pretty much everything they do is because they love each other or related to that, not because <laughs> yes. they're inherently evil, yes. which, which is really important and specific to, to that play. Mm. But it made me think, vis-a-vis this the whole Merchant of Venice um, debacle, is contradiction something that audiences expect from Shakespeare or easily pick up on or are open to? Because if you look at, say, Othello, one of the hardest things to understand about Iago, for instance, is why he seems so purely evil. And often people go in to watch a Shakespeare play not mm. not thinking about character so much in a, in a deep way. Mm. Big, big question. Um, let me begin by saying that I, th- I think... One of the things that audiences enjoy with Shakespeare is having it solved. (laughs) So you come away kind of going, I have a concrete sense of what's gone on. And I've always punished myself for not having the appropriate education or experience. And and so the audience always blame themselves, I I think, in that instance. And then when they see a production that is very clear, I think they celebrate it and also celebrate themselves. Now, I think that's not a bad thing. Uh, However... That experience is a reductive experience of the plays. I don't think, I think the plays, I mean, um, Emma Smith, who recently wrote this wonderful book called This is Shakespeare, talks about the gappiness in Shakespeare. There are lots of slippages of meaning. There are lots of inconsistencies, these, these holes where we as an audience enter into it where it suddenly doesn't become a play about Othello or Desdemona or Othello and Iago. It becomes a play about us. Macbeth or Lady Macbeth, it becomes a play about marriage, our marriages, our potential for violence, our potential vulnerabilities to influence. Uh, I'm always an advocate of messy Shakespeare (laughs) because I think it's more truthful Hmm. to the plays. What do you mean by messy Shakespeare? Um, By messy Shakespeare, I mean human Shakespeare. And by, by human Shakespeare, I mean... Inconsist- I don't think we're consistent creatures. It's the first time she talks about her own past. I think that's the trick with this scene, isn't it? Is that what you're both trying to do is, is play light and life yeah. rather than that horrible impending sense of, of an end. Mm. I would you had never seen him. So would not I. Challenge her with the how dare you. So would not I, and how dare you say? Let, let, let's take that challenge. Dismiss me. It was his bidding. Therefore, good Amelia, give me my knightly wearing and adieu. We must not now displease him. Who would you have never seen him? So would not I. My love doth so approve him that even his stubbornness, his checks, his frowns, Prithee, unpin me. Have grace and favour in them. I've laid those sheets you bade me on the bed. All's one. Good faith. How foolish are our minds. If I should die before thee, prithee shroud me in one of those same sheets. Come, come, you talk. My mother had a maid called Barbary. She was in love. 
I think we contradict ourselves from moment to moment. I think we are a series of provisional moments. Is Cleopatra consistent? See where he is. Who's with him, what he does. I did not send you. If you find him sad, say, I am dancing. If in mirth, report that I am sudden sick, quick, and return. Madam, methinks if you did love him dearly, you do not hold the method to enforce the like from him. What? She's a kind of, uh, there's often that, uh, how do you do Cleopatra's infinite variety? <laughs> uh, um, right. I'm Shakespeare. Or Lear. Exactly. And what Shakespeare does is he selects fragments that suggest the complexity of a mind or the complexity of, of, of human experience. And these collection of fragments aren't necessarily consistent. They don't tell the same story. What they do is they enrich the picture. And I think they represent a, a truer picture of, of what I see as the experience of, of living, of being human. Oh, this is interesting. And, and this links into something I wanted to ask you, another provocative thing you said in another, in another interview, which is that you don't really believe in characters in Shakespeare. <laughs> and um, I, I wasn't even sure really what you meant by that. But is this what you were talking about? Yeah, I think it is this sort of thing. I mean, it's where somebody, where people are creating consistent, definable psychologies uh, particularly in the 21st century sense. I think you can use all of that stuff. But I think Shakespeare's doing use something... Use it for big. your actors, you mean? Use it to for get, your actors, ex- exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. But I, I think Shakespeare's never just presenting a character. He's never just presenting a psychology. He's also doing something a bit more metaphysical. So, for instance, I, I've seen very few productions of Hamlet that I've come away satisfied with. Because I think what often happens with something like Hamlet is is somebody has a theory that they dramatize. And what often happens when you make Hamlet too human, <laughs> uh, too recognizably a, a psychological portrait, is you remove something of the numinous from him and from the experience of him in the play. M- my... The, 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 the challenge I set myself when, when I present these plays is, is to find a way to release that experience of the play and the characters into the audience. Um, now, I know, as you say, I think actors need to feel like they are doing something real and concrete in the moment. But how we collect these real moments together tells a different story. I, that is such a knife edge that you walk between mm. wanting your audience to walk away saying, oh, now I get it. Now I know what that language, that beautiful language actually means and also what actually happens in the play. But also that you they come away with this the the subtlety and the contradictions of of that idea you're talking about of of the prismatic aspect of the characters that seems that seems kind good well done but you see but i think what i'm talking about here is is saying you can present the plays and present a series of characters that we all recognize and, and tell a really exciting story about these collection of characters. And the audience walk away kind of going, I recognize those characters. I've seen those. I've met those people. And it's a surprising and, and lovely story, delightful story. And that's great. But I, th- I think 
what you surrender when you do it like that is you surrender the poetic potential of that experience. I mean, a very simple element of this is the the music of language. I think we use it all the time in real life, and we don't think about it. But um, but I but when I say it and I sing it, I'm sort of <laughs> communicating to you what it is. What it, I mean, the paralinguistic is is stuff that we use all the time in our uh, in our communicative arsenal, and I think we diminish our audiences if we don't allow ourselves to use the full arsenal of the paralinguistic possibilities of language and behavior. Uh, and it, it's that kind of imaginative engagement that, that I want to release in, our, in my versions of the play and my work with the actors. And I think it's it completely comprehensible for an audience. And we see it all the time in, in life. We engage with that, that degree of complexity all the time. Well, switching gears now, yes. uh, I I must ask you, despite mm. having put on a production of Macbeth with your brothers when you were eight, uh, <laughs> you did not start out in theater. No. Uh, I, no. I understand you got a degree in math at university, and then you went back to get an, a degree in, I think it was physics, right? And mm. that was all before even really dipping a toe in, in theater. So what made you change course? Um, well, I, I actually didn't get the degree in maths and I didn't get the degree in physics. So I started a maths degree at Cambridge. I degraded, as they called it, uh, for, for a year and then I was clinically depressed and so I had to degrade again. And I, I, I could have then gone back to university and done English because I had an English A-level. Uh, but I was also in love with the sciences and with the beauty of mathematics. But I, And I thought well, what would be the most practical thing to do would be to go back to university and do physics. In the meantime, because of my clinical depression, I had seen a voice therapist. Uh, and one of the things she said to me was, when you go back to university, will you please do some drama um, and music? Um, but it was only when I went back to university after this voice therapist had suggested I go back and auditioned for Twelfth Night at Imperial College. And I spent a lot of time in, the, in a rehearsal room listening and observing other people because I only had a tiny scene at the end. That, that I, I had this sort of, Damascan moment, this Damascene moment, where I, I suddenly felt like the the kind of conversations I wanted to have, the room I wanted to be in, was this kind of room. That there was a freedom and a complexity to the conversations, a, a vulnerability and a generosity in the conversations that were happening, that was thrilling to me. And then I decided to run away to the circus. Oh, that's so, quite so I, 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 I suppose what's interesting is that I encountered quite a lot of struggle and and a sense of failure throughout that period and when I was when I was at Cambridge what was very interesting was that I came from a very poor background and I'd, I was suddenly catapulted into this powerhouse with people who spoke within with an enormous volume but didn't say much and at the time I was completely overwhelmed by that and intimidated by it and I didn't take up the space that I I could have taken up and I withdrew into myself. And it was only much later, and maybe through theatre and through the conversations I was, I was having, that I managed to kind of value m my instincts, my, my voice, my, and taking up the space that I, I, I could take up in the world. Well, we started this conversation talking about how to make a play seem fresh and resonant. Mm. And I know that you have gone to pains to make a distinction in the past between Shakespeare resonating for your yeah. audience as opposed yeah. to your role is to make the plays relevant. Mm. 
So I think my last question is, what's the difference between the plays resonating and the plays being relevant? What does that mean to you? I suppose it's the difference between coming out of something and feeling like you've experienced something thrilling outside of your experience. And that's that's the resonating thing. But the, the urgent thing is when your paradigms, your systems of belief have been shifted, have been dislocated by the experience. When you've come out sort of feeling like unsettled, so, so you've gone into the piece thinking certain things about certain things and then come out kind of going, well, I'm, maybe I'm not so certain. You know, so that sense of dislocation can be thrilling. It can also be unsettling. And it's, Is that it's, something it's, that comes from the Shakespeare? Because I, you're reminding me of that Stephen Greenblatt quote that Shakespeare was mm. the master of the oblique angle. Yes, yes, so, yes. He sends you off kilter and... I, th- I think it, it goes back to what you were talking about earlier on, which is to do with the presentation of contradiction as a human experience. I think s- so often what we do in the in the world is we try and remove contradictions from our experience. We see contradictions as being as as making us vulnerable to challenge, and we sort of isolate ourselves with simple truths that bind us in tribes. And it feels to me, if if with the Shakespeare we can thrill and tease an audience into embracing unknowing, <laughs> that 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 is one of the most important gifts that we can give to future audiences. That it's okay not to know, because the, then you're always engaged in discovering the new. Um, so Shakespeare's plays, I think, celebrate that independence of voices of types that create a much richer whole, as it were. Well, so inspiring. I'm going to go out of this embracing, unknowing. Uh, thank you, <laughs> But I'm so glad to have gotten to know thank you, you a thank little you, bit today. Thank you. Iqbal Khan is directed at Shakespeare's Globe in the West End and the Royal Shakespeare Company, where he staged Much Ado About Nothing, Antony and Cleopatra, Tartuffe, and Othello. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, Tell the Tale Anew, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Evan Marquardt at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Dom Boucher at The Sound Company in London. If you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, and if you're looking for another way to let people know about it, please review us on Apple Podcasts. That's really the best way to help. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. And if you find yourself visiting Washington, D.C., we hope you'll visit us on Capitol Hill. See a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face to face with one of our first folios, the first printed edition of Shakespeare's plays. We hope to see you here. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger director Michael Whitmore.